You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. You're certainly right. It's on the black burner. I've been talking to some of your group here in Moscow. Nobody's paying any attention to them. Uh, But we have to face the fact that foreign policy rates, as you know from your own polls, only 4% in the polls. When President Clinton had his town meeting last week, you'll recall he got one question in one hour on foreign policy, and that was on Bosnia, not Russia. I would say this. What happens to Russia is by far the most important foreign policy issue of this administration or of our time. If the Russian reforms fail, it's going to completely destroy all of the initiatives that President Clinton has at home. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace. This is our look at Richard Nixon from 1990 or 1980 to 1994. Um, And this is our second episode, and it's going to center on two things. The emerging relationship between Richard Nixon and President Bill Clinton that... uh, uh, Clinton was elected in 1992, took office in 93. Uh, Richard Nixon dies in April of 94. So over about a year and a half period of time, Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton become good friends. And they take in, and Clinton takes advice from him and, and, and really reaches out to him uh, to, to, um, to help him with his decisions about Russia, about uh, far-ranging foreign policy decisions. And Russia is the other subject and the main subject, because especially right now, uh, as you know, we've we've had Russia invade Ukraine, and tensions there are going to blow up, and it's it, it have blown up. And Richard Nixon foresaw these issues as far back as 1994, as the Soviet Union had disintegrated. And so we're going to look back at what Richard Nixon had to say about Russia, his ideas for. Uh, where Russia, how to help Russia as it was emerging, and and frankly, we didn't follow that advice. And then some of his insights that I still think could be applied, uh, depending on how the world situation shakes out um, in the, in the next little while. But Richard Nixon had emerged as an advisor to presidents over this twenty year period of time, really beginning with Reagan. You know, he had. Uh, the relationship with George, with Gerald Ford, you know, was was stressed and strained, and and, and Nixon was in exile. He had no relationship with Jimmy Carter uh, to speak of, and his real opportunity will come with Ronald Reagan. Casey Pipes goes through this. He's a historian who wrote an excellent book on Richard Nixon uh, called After the Fall, and he was doing a, a lecture on the resurrection of Richard Nixon. And I grabbed this clip from it as he talks about the relationship that Richard Nixon had with the various presidents. He certainly saw Reagan, particularly in 84, when Reagan 
like Nixon wins 49 states. He certainly saw that as a as a big moment uh, for the party to sort of become a a, a majority party again. Um, and I think he, you know, a lot of his advice that he was giving um, to Mike Deaver and others, Lynn Nofziger, um, again, a lot of it was foreign policy, but a lot of it was was stylistic stuff and and things that Reagan could be doing to kind of grow the majority. So he was very much a faithful Republican through those years. Now, the Bush years, um, he's boy, he gets pretty down on Bush um, and he's uh, extremely critical of James Baker, which, of course, Peter Baker has a new book out on him. Um, he thinks that, uh, you know, Baker's not quite as sharp as he thinks he is on the world stage. Um, and then, of course, as I mentioned, the, the real issue is, is uh, to some extent, the Persian Gulf War, but really uh, the, the end of the Cold War and Bush's handling of it. Nixon thought he was way too passive that um, he these breakaway republics, these people that were sort of, you know, trying to start democratic republics, they needed an endorsement from America. They needed support. And he didn't he didn't really sense Bush doing enough of that. Uh, and then with Clinton, you know, he he really um, again, he's still very much a Republican, but he 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 takes Clinton very seriously. Uh, he sees Clinton as a as a very, very uh, sophisticated, very bright president, um, very capable president. Uh, and he actually enjoys working with him far better than he did with, with Bush. So I don't know that he ever changed his views on on partisan politics. He you know, he he saw look, he. To the day he died, he saw Watergate um, as a partisan fight, you know, that, that this was that, you know, he, he was going to go down fighting for his team and, and trying to protect his guys. Um, so I don't know that he ever softened on partisan politics, but he certainly with Clinton was willing to to work across the aisle in a pretty big way. This relationship between President Clinton and former President Nixon is just fascinating uh, Nixon reaches out to President Clinton just before, uh, after Clinton's been elected, but before he takes office. It takes a while for them to get together. Uh, and then Nixon goes on a trip to Russia. And he lets the president know that he wants to come back and brief him when he, when he returns. And Clinton agrees to it. And what is fascinating is I found these snippets I'm going to uh, play for you right now of Richard Nixon in an interview in February, and at that time, he is in the Soviet Union, uh, or in Russia. The Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, but he's in Russia. And it appears to me, on, on as he's preparing to go into this meeting with Bill Clinton, when he comes back, he's sending messages to President Clinton and giving him advice both on the uh, budget deal and on uh, the State of the Union, which is which is coming up uh, before Nixon gets back from Russia. It is very important for a president in his first State of the Union to take on the unpopular positions and make them popular, because as time goes on, his own popularity goes down and he isn't able to accomplish anything. The second point I would make, however, it is very important that if he has tax increases, that he also have spending uh, cuts. If those tax increases are not balanced with spending cuts, it is not going to get approval from this Congress or from the American people. Well, President Clinton 
And you know, of course, that I supported President Bush, but President Clinton is an excellent campaigner. He is an excellent speaker. He can move an audience. He can move the nation. I would say that now is the time for him to take on the tough issues, take them on, and then convince people that this is the right thing for them. I would say, however, it must not simply be a case of going with what uh, would appear popular to the masses, and that is to soak the rich. If that's all it is, that isn't going to fly, because soaking the rich means less jobs for the poor. To me, that's just fascinating to hear Richard Nixon basically sending advice and a message to Bill Clinton in, in preparation for this meeting that he's going to have. And Nixon's always well prepared. So he's, he's overseas, talking to the press, sending a message back of advice, an olive branch to Bill Clinton. And then when he comes to the meeting, he's prepared for Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton too. What was it like to meet President? I met him when Bill was in the White House. I don't recall ever meeting him before, but I haven't thought hard about that. Um, he had been to Russia. He called the White House and asked if he could come by and brief Bill about his trip to Russia. Bill was fascinated by the idea because despite his resignation, and his uh, abuse of, of power, he was an incredibly experienced, uh, intelligent uh, person who knew a lot about the world. And so Chelsea and I and Bill, uh, he, was, he was brought into the White House and brought up the elevator to the second floor because Bill was going to meet him in his private study. He came at night, as I recall, um, but maybe just right after he got back from Russia. Uh, so Chelsea and I and Bill greeted him, welcomed him back to the White House. Um, he had obviously thought about what he wanted to say. So when he saw me, he said, well, I know you're working hard on health care. That's really a big task. And when he saw Chelsea, he said, oh, my daughters went to Sidwell like you are. So he had something that he'd prepared to say to us. And then, uh, and he had a folder, so I think he'd written a memo. But then he and Bill went off uh, to talk about Russia. President Nixon had strong views on leadership, and he believed that you had to move quickly. As Casey Pipes points out from his studies, so, you know, he always he had a number of, of sayings that he would would quote to his staff. One of them was, you know, if you if you don't get on top of the job, the job's going to get on top of you. Um, you know, he, he liked decisiveness. He liked uh, leaders that take the initiative. Um, a lot of his advice to Reagan is is along these lines of, you know, you know, here's a here's a program you can announce and here's how you can, you know, take the lead on this and take the initiative, even with Mrs. Reagan. I mean, he's sending her advice on things that she can be out doing. So he views leadership in a very active sense, that it's something that you're, you're out doing, you're, you're making decisions, you're decisive, you're leading, uh, you're defining the issue. Um, I mean, that was very much kind of how he, how he viewed leadership. And I think that's kind of the key to understanding the friendship that developed between Bill Clinton and 
uh, Richard Nixon. I think Nixon had grown very, very frustrated with what he viewed to be uh, the slow movement of the, the Bush administration at dealing with Russia. In 1994, uh, uh, President Nixon wrote in his book Beyond Peace on page 80, In our relations with Russia, Ukraine, and the other newly independent states, we must keep one point foremost in mind. There is no time to lose. General MacArthur once said that the history of failure in war could be summarized in two words, too late. The same two words summarize the history of failure to win the peace after victory in war. In the wake of the collapse of communism, the United States and the West have failed to seize the moment. And I think he thought of Bill Clinton as an opportunity to seize that moment. And he put, he was pushing Bill Clinton to move quickly. And I think one of the knocks, perhaps, on Bill Clinton in those first two, two years, from 92 to 94, was that he did try to do a million things at once and move quickly in that Nixon mode without perhaps the same kind of strategic vision that President Nixon had had. And it got him into trouble. And if you remember, 94 came the great Republican Revolution. And really, the, the hallmark of Bill Clinton's later presidency is his ability to, to take issues one at a time and triangulate the extremes on the left and, of course, the Republican Party that uh, had emerged in the House. whole other story. Uh, but, and, uh, but I think this memo that Nixon wrote to President uh, Clinton about Russia uh, led to a lot of really good policy decisions that Bill Clinton made. Uh, and he, I, I remember when President Nixon died, uh, David Gergen was on TV talking about uh, Bill Clinton, uh, was wondering about President Nixon's mind. This is during the week that he had the stroke. He said, I hope it didn't because he had this document this, that, Nick, uh, that Clinton had just uh, received from Nixon when Nixon went back. Um, and uh, he said it was the most lucid document he'd ever read. And a lot of decisions in foreign policy in those early Clinton years came from the advice that he got from Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon was very determined to help Russia. He believed that there was no more important thing than to help uh, get Russia on the right track because that was our great opportunity. Nixon wrote in, that, in his book, again, Beyond Peace, on page 82, for 75 years the Soviet Union tried to export the ideas of communism to the rest of the world using propaganda, subversion, and naked aggression. Now, democratic Russia can offer the rest of the world an example of a great people enjoying economic and political freedom. The profound unanswered question will be whether democratic capitalism in Russia can compete with communist capitalism in China. If it fails to do so, and if Russia turns to reactionary leaders, the hardline leaders in China and other dictators in the world will be hardened. If it succeeds, political and economic freedom will be the wave of the future in the 21st century. How the post-Ding struggle will end depends mainly on what happens within China, but developments outside China, including those in Russia, can affect the result. If the Russian experiment in economic and political freedom succeeds, China's moderates will benefit. If Russia's reforms fail, this will encourage the reactionaries. Nixon was on the right track, and he was pushing Bill Clinton in the right direction. And from here on out, I want to let you listen to President Nixon. Uh, he is in several different interview formats as he talks about the work we should be doing 
back in the early 1990s to strengthen Russian democracy and help with their economy, even if we had to pour money into it uh, like a uh, you know, like a Marshall Plan. And he also had this that he talks about, and that is that Russia had not had the same kind of trading class or management of business kind of class of people the way the Chinese had. You know, the Chinese have this mixture now of communism and capitalism. The Russians really never had that middle management. And he, so he wanted to spend money on small businesses and helping them learn how to run business so that it would have a foundation there. And I would argue that the collapse, that you know, the economic problems that they had and the rise of a man like Putin, which Richard Nixon predicted if we didn't help them, was because of this, uh, we, we tended to throw money at whatever governmental problem that the Russians had taught us about without this idea that Nixon had had about small business and strengthening that class of people. And it's led to the situation you see now in which despotism has risen, not only in Russia, but it's been encouraged around the world. And our own weakness, I think, from Afghanistan has led to what happened in Ukraine because whenever freedom and the West appears weak, the tyrants make their move. Well, Russia at the present time is at a crossroads. Uh, It is often said that the the Cold War is over and that the West has won it. That's only half true uh, because what has happened is that the communists have been defeated uh, but the ideas of freedom now are on trial. If they don't work, there will, there will be a reversion to not communism, which has failed, but what I call a new despotism, which would pose a mortal danger uh, to the rest of the world because it would have be infected with the virus of Russian imperialism, which, of course, has been a characteristic of Russian foreign policy for centuries. We begin with that. Therefore, The West has, the United States has, all those who want peace and freedom in the world, a great stake in freedom succeeding in Russia. If it succeeds, it will be an example for others to follow. It will be an example for China, for example, to follow, uh, for the other communist states, the few that remain. If it fails, it means that the hardliners in China will get a new life. They will say, it failed there, there's no reason for us to turn to democracy. That's part of what is at stake here. Uh, The other point that we have to have in mind is that it's vitally important that it succeed because it means that Russia, which for 70 years has been exporting or trying to export the ideas of communism to the world, will now be exporting the ideas of freedom, the ideas of democracy, the goods of freedom. It means that Russia, for example, will be able to export goods that will be a huge export market, for example, for the United States and other countries. So I would simply sum it up to say for our Korean audience, it means a great deal to Korea too. Because Russia, the Soviet Union I should say, was a very strong supporter of North Vietnam. Russia will not be a supporter of North Vietnam. And that means that we have here a potential ally joining with the United States and other other free countries in putting pressure on North Korea not to go forward with a nuclear option. Mr. President, uh, you said one of the briefers on Yeltsin in 1991 sounded just like recording a briefer who gave a briefing on Khrushchev some 30 years ago. What about the advisors to the president? Is it fairly difficult for a chief executive to sort out the accuracy of uh, what advisors tell him? Oh, yes, it is difficult. 
uh, the main thing is, is to get plenty of advice, but then the president has got to decide. Uh, and in this case, for example, the briefers were overly impressed by the style factor. They said because Khrushchev drank too much and he wore sloppy clothes and spoke bad Russian grammar, uh, that he was not going to be a strong leader. He was one of the brightest leaders. In fact, he had the quickest reaction time of any leader I've ever met. And with Yeltsin, they say that, uh, well, he's boorish. He, he, uh, he, for example, one, one columnist made the point that uh, at a state dinner, he used to lick caviar off his fingers and butter. And let me say, Yeltsin may not know what kind of a fork to use at a state dinner, but he has a very sharp political knife. That's what they fail to see. Yeltsin, the man, is a very strong leader. Uh, he has his weaknesses, but he has good people around him. But mainly, he believes in the right things. He believes in democracy. He believes in freedom. He believes in free markets. And therefore, he deserves our support. Mr. President, there are lots of pressures on, on a president, on a chief executive, and uh, they come from the media, from the political opposition, from the legislature, from all sorts of places. In your book, you refer to Lithuanian President Landsbergis, who quotes Ibsen in saying, the strongest man in the world is he who stands alone. And then you go on to say, there must be absolute inflexibility on matters of principle. Does a president have to risk his political popularity even when swimming against the tide of popular opinion of the time? No question about it. The purpose of popularity is not to hoard it, but to use it. Uh, a popular president should use his popularity to accomplish great uh, objectives. And here's where Yeltsin comes in. Yeltsin was enormously popular after he put down the coup, standing on top of that tank, facing down card-carrying killers uh, from the Stalinist coup attempt. But then he had to make a decision to go toward the free market. In order to do that, he had to let the prices go up. That risked his popularity. His popularity is down. But without doing that, there's no way they can move to a free market. That is using popularity rather than hoarding it. My advice to any president, any leader, when you are popular, don't just sit on it. Use it to accomplish great goals. In other words, don't lose your nerve. The nerve is more important than any other factor in leadership. And we're back once again with former President Richard Nixon. Mr. President, uh, let's take a look at the Soviet Union. I must tell you, uh, I read, uh, you were kind enough to give me the, the galleys of your book uh, before it was printed, uh, and I was surprised at uh, how perceptive you were with regard to Yeltsin versus Gorbachev. You, in fact, kissed Gorbachev off months ago. Uh, yes, the book and, was finished in September, and that's when I wrote uh, Gorbachev off. And Not because I wanted to, but because that was the fact. Well, it wasn't just a matter of kissing him off, but you were, you were quite critical of those in the, in the administration uh, who were being somewhat hesitant about giving Yeltsin his due. Well, I think it's been a mistake to engage in Yeltsin bashing. Uh, I don't think he's the second coming. I don't think anybody is, as a matter of fact. But on the other hand, he has the power. Uh, he has repudiated communism. He is for the free market. He, he is going to adopt a foreign policy which is not aggressive. Uh, he's going to cut off all aid to Cuba and Afghanistan and these other losers in the third world. Uh, and anybody that does those things deserves the support of the United States. We should hope that he survives. You think he will? I think he will survive. I am uh, more optimistic on that than many are. 
Uh, I think he will survive first because he believes in the right things. Uh, he is the only alternative. Uh, I think second, he will survive because he is a very strong leader. Third, he has a characteristic that every leader should have. He isn't afraid to have people smarter than he is around him. He has surrounded himself with very bright young people. And they, are, they have worked out his economic plan. Gorbachev, unfortunately, who was very bright himself, made a mistake. He was surrounded by what I would call first-rate, second-rate people, except possibly for Shevardnadze, who was first-rate first in every respect. What would you say is the biggest danger facing that entity, which we used to call the Soviet Union, that, that new commonwealth? Uh, is it nationalism? Is it the ethnic divisions that have existed uh, and have been essentially suppressed over the last 70-some-odd years? Is it the danger of nuclear proliferation, that is, of some of these weapons falling into other hands? Nationalism is a danger, uh, but it's one that I think that Yeltsin will be shrewd enough to handle. Uh, as far as nuclear prol proliferation is concerned, it isn't a question of the weapons proliferating, it's a question of the knowledge to make them proliferate. They're not going to take these weapons and cart them over to somebody else who won't know how to use them or to make them. And in that respect, you've got to find a way to improve the Russian economy so that they will stay home and a way to work out joint uh, ventures with the United States and other Western countries scientists so that they will have a place to go. You want to remember, of course, that German scientists, uh, Werner von Braun and others, helped us develop our missile capability. We don't want to have the... Russian or Soviet scientists who are very, very good in this area. They may be last in many other areas, but they're very good in this area. We don't, have the, we don't want to have them ending up in places like Libya or Syria or other rogue states. And how do you prevent that? It is a difficult thing to do, but the point is to give them a better option. Give them a better option at home, improved conditions there, other activities for them to engage in, and better options in working with their compatriots abroad. Well, I mean, when you talk about, you've got to give them, uh, who are you talking about? That the United States has to do that? That the United States has to be helpful? The United States has to be helpful, not only in that respect, but also uh, with regard to uh, humanitarian aid, with regard to possible aid for the transition purposes and so forth. But we have to recognize that whereas right after the great victory in World War II, we had to do it alone because there was no one else to do it that now, after the defeat of communism in 1991, there are others who should assume that burden more than we do. Those that we helped after World War II, the Germans have already done for their own reasons, you know, have provided a considerable amount of help to the former Soviet Union. But the Japanese should pick up a lot of the tab. A lot of Americans are saying, how can we afford to continue giving foreign aid around the world when things are going so badly in our own economy? Uh, people have a tendency to look upon foreign aid as being another variation of charity. you agree? Totally not. If it were charity, uh, then we wouldn't do it. Although we are a very generous uh, people, as you know. Uh, whenever there's an earthquake or a tragedy any place in the world, Americans pour out their hearts and their money as well. But on the other hand, as far as foreign aid is concerned, we're doing it for our own interest. It's very important at this time that Yeltsin not fail. Because as Russia goes, the rest of the former uh, Soviet Union will also go. As you look back now, and, and you've lived during an extraordinary period, and I hope you don't feel I'm giving away any 
secrets when I say you're going to be 79 later this week. As you look back now on your career, do you think we are better positioned today than we have ever been? Uh, assess for me the, you know, the possible dangers and, and, and the possible gains. We still live in a very dangerous world because of the instability in the world. But that instability is very as preferable to what it was before. And when you had stability with all the power in the Soviet Union in one source, uh, that was a potential danger to the United States of great magnitude because that was the only power in the world that could destroy the United States. Today, that power has been passed around to others, the Russians, Ukrainians. For example, the control of nuclear weapons, uh, as you know, uh, is now in the hands of four, the button so-called. It cannot be pushed unless four agree. That makes it a much safer world. I would say as far as the world generally is concerned, though, it's a much more hopeful world because of the march of democracy. When you stop to think that today, as Freedom House reported just last week, over half the countries in the world are now democracies are on the way to becoming democracies, that's something new in the world. When you think that today we have a situation where freedom is on the march every place, communism has been discredited, socialism has been discredited, authoritarianism has been discredited, the people of the world know that freedom works. It works in the United States. It works in Western Europe. It works in Japan. And if we can help make it work in the former Soviet Union, then it means the victory will have been won. And it'll mean the next century can be a century of peace. It can be a century of progress. It can be a century of freedom. And that's something that's certainly worth Americans supporting, whether with foreign aid or any other facility we can use. President Nixon, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Happy thank birthday, you. and uh, I, I wish you good fortune with your new book and hope to have you back for your 80th. Well, I hope I don't celebrate my 80th on television because that's the time when you don't want to look back. You want to look forward and see what you're going to do with the rest of your life. There you go. Thank you, sir. I'll be back in a moment. <laughs> This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone can embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. <laughs> Thank you.
come now to the fundamental question. Is it necessary uh, for the United States to play a role in this new world since all of these events have occurred? And those who answer no uh, begin with the, what I think is a false premise. It goes something like this. Uh, the Cold War is over and we have won it. It's time to come home. Uh, that's only half true. It is true that as far as the Cold War is concerned, the communists have lost it. It is not true, however, that the free world has won it. What we have to realize is that the Cold War was not the traditional war over territory by great powers. It was a war of ideas, the ideas of communism versus the ideas of freedom. But we can see that war most clearly in Russia. In Russia, the place where the seeds of the idea of communism were first planted. The Russian people ripped uh, reap the very bitter harvest from those seeds that have been planted. And as a result, the Russian people rejected communism. They rejected it because it didn't work. But now freedom is on trial. And if freedom does not work, the Russian people are not going to return to communism because it failed. But they will return, in my view, to what I would call a new despotism in which they trade their freedom for security, and in which they, which they had in effect, provide for leadership and to put their future in the hands of those who are going to make sure that they can have the necessities of life and who make the promises, and then, of course, will have the opportunity to carry them out. This new despotism, which would be shorn of the dying faith, the baggage of the dying faith of communism, this new despotism which would have the overtones of imperialist Russian uh, activities which have been traditional in Russian history, that new despotism could be a far more dangerous threat to peace and freedom in the world, and particularly to peace, uh, than was the old Soviet totalitarianism. And it is that, therefore, that we have to address today. So let us turn to Russia. And in turning to Russia, as I was saying to Dr. Brzezinski during lunch, that does not mean that I believe we should ignore what is happening in Ukraine and the other republics that have become independent in Eastern Europe and the rest. But I use Russia only as the prime example of the problem. What I say about Russia would apply to the others as well. As we look at Russia today, the question somebody asked me at the table was briefly this. Is it going to work? Are they going to survive? Is freedom going to survive? And the answer is it's going to be a very close run thing. It's going to be close run because there are many minus factors at this time. Among them, as Dmitry Symes has pointed out in a recent article, corruption is rampant. Among them, we have the problem of ethnic quarrels. Among them, we have the problem of enormous suffering because of the changes that have been made economically by the attempt uh, to build a free market society in Russia. And one of the major reasons that there is a serious question as to whether freedom can succeed in Russia is the lack of a management class. When I say the lack of a management class, that indicates why the Marshall Plan analogy will not work. Because when we look at Russia and when we compare the situation in Europe and for that matter in Japan at the end of World War II, 
Five years of war did not destroy them in management class in Western Europe or in Japan. Seventy years of totalitarian communism did destroy the management class in Russia. And therefore, you have to have a different approach than simply the Marshall Plan approach. Those are the negatives. There are some positive factors, which we sometimes overlook. And one is that Russia is a very rich country, rich in resources and rich in its people. It's a highly industrialized society. The Russian people are a great people. They are a strong people. We have to realize that 95% of the Russian people are literate. We have to realize that on their workforce, 90% have the equivalent of a high school education. We have to recognize, too, that Russia produces some of the great scientists, the great engineers, particularly in military activities. Some people forget that the first man in space was not an American, it was a Russian. There's another factor on the plus side, which is often overlooked. Pushkin in the 19th century wrote that rebellions in Russia tend to be senseless and violent. What is particularly significant about the revolution that has occurred is that it was neither violent nor, of course, was it senseless. And this is to the great credit, we would have to say, to both Gorbachev and Yeltsin. The major factor on the plus side, however, is that Russia, the new Russia, has a strong leader. Now, there's a tendency to underestimate Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin. Uh, some say that democratically that he, he uh, simply uh, isn't, uh, that politically he isn't democratic enough. And others say that uh, uh, intellectually he's not smart enough, socially uh, that he's not smooth enough. Uh, I have seen many great leaders over the past 44 years. I would rate both Gorbachev and Yeltsin as political heavyweights. Both were born as peasants. Gorbachev became a man of the world. Yeltsin remained a man of the people. And Yeltsin, right now, must never forget that. As he moves under the world scene, he must always remember that if he's going to change the world, he first has to change Russia. He has to change it from dictatorship to democracy. He has to change it from command economy to a free market economy. And if he's going to be able to do that, he's going to need help. The question is, should we provide that help? Let's look at the positive factors as far as Yeltsin is concerned. Yeltsin has demonstrated his physical courage by standing on top of a bank and facing uh, of, a, of a tank and uh, facing down a, a gang of card-carrying killers who were trying, of course, to run a counter-Stalinist uh, coup. Uh, we also find that uh, Yeltsin, in addition to that, and this is even more important in my view, he has political courage. He risked his immense popularity uh, by adopting policies which let the ruble float. They have enormous inflation, it's caused enormous hardship, and as a result, has brought his popularity down. But it was a necessary first step in moving from a command to a free market economy. He is one who, unlike Gorbachev, if you read Gorbachev's first column in the New York Times a few days ago, Yeltsin is one who has repudiated not just communism, but socialism as well. He is one, too, who has completely vetoed all of the foreign aid programs that he inherited from Gorbachev, which in the year 1990 took $15 billion from the Russian budget, which provided aid to a number of countries, including Cuba, 
which were antagonistic to the West and to the United States. And we all know that in the field of arms control, for example, he not only has matched what President Bush has courageously taken the initiative on, he has exceeded it. So what do we find? Russian, we find that Yeltsin is the most pro-Western leader in Russian history. Under those circumstances, then, he deserves our help. What does he need? He needs a number of things, uh, just to tick off a few of them. Uh, he needs, for example, help from the IMF and other sources, uh, and that will take billions of dollars to stabilize the ruble. He, he needs to, more open markets for the exports, which Russia would want to make, the new Russia, uh, to the West and to other parts of the world. Uh, he needs, in addition, uh, to the, the help of the West insofar as humanitarian aid is concerned. Uh, and there needs to be, without question, uh, one facility, uh, a, a Western group, uh, which would analyze all and assess all of the needs and then would develop a program for working out with private enterprise and with governments how they meet those needs. I won't go into further detail because the experts can fill you in on it. But to summarize very briefly, it is important for us to recognize that Yeltsin is going to need very substantial economic aid from the West, not just the United States, I emphasize, but from the West. The New York Times in its editorial today estimated that, that the cost of the aid to cover some of these items that I have mentioned and others would be approximately $20 billion a year over a period of five years. That's a great deal of money. However, the, the London Financial Times in its report yesterday pointed out that $20 billion a year has to be compared with 20 times that much that the West spent even last year before the collapse of communism to defend against the Soviet communism. So under the circumstances, this puts it all in perspective. Now we come to the hard political questions. Uh, what does the United States do? How do we meet this problem? Particularly when we are in the midst of a, of a presidential campaign uh, and in the middle of a recession. And the first argument that is made, and it's one that is well taken, is that the United States has carried this burden long enough. It's time for others to take it. That after World War II, uh, we provided aid to our allies, of course, but also to our defeated enemies and enable them to recover from World War II. Now it's time, therefore, for those that we helped then to assume the burden for helping the Soviet Union, uh, the other uh, countries in the former Soviet Union, I mean, helping Russia, uh, the other independent countries in the former Soviet Union and those in Eastern Europe, that it's time for the ones we helped recover from World War II, help them recover from the Cold War. They are right. The major burden for meeting the needs that Russia has and the other countries that need to be, need the help, that must be carried by the countries in Europe and in Japan that we helped after World War II. But the United States is the richest and strongest nation in the world, and we must provide the leadership. We cannot provide the leadership unless we have a seat at the table. To paraphrase Ben Stein in another context, you can't have a seat at the table unless you have chips to put in the pot. 
and we have to have enough chips to be a serious uh, contender for that leadership role. Now we come to basically a fundamentally basic question in a campaign year. What's in it for us? What's in it for us to help the Russians, Ukraine, uh, the other independent countries in the Soviet Union and the countries of Eastern Europe? And the answer is that a great deal is in it for us. Charity, it is said, begins at home, and I agree. But aid to Russia, just speaking of Russia specifically, is not charity. We have to realize that if Yeltsin fails, the alternative is not going to be somebody better. It's going to be somebody infinitely worse. We have to realize that if Yeltsin fails, if freedom fails, the new despotism which will take its place will mean that the peace dividend is finished. We will have to rearm, and that's going to cost infinitely more than with the aid that would be would provide at the present time. It would also mean if Yeltsin failed, if freedom fails in Russia, it means that the great wave of freedom that has been going all over the world in these recent two or three years, that it will begin to ebb, and that dictatorship rather than democracy will be the wave of the future. On the other hand, if freedom succeeds in Russia, let's see what it means. It means that Russia will be an example to others, particularly in China, particularly in the other communist countries, the remaining ones, and in the non-communist dictatorships around the world, an example for the others to follow, a powerful magnet drawing them to that. It would mean, too, that we have with Russia succeeding, a totally new world, a new world in the sense that what it can mean to everybody, particularly to us in the United States as well. Just think, for 70 years, communist Russia has been trying to export communism around the world. If Yeltsin and the reforms succeed, democratic free Russia will be exporting the goods and ideas of freedom around the world. And that means that in the years ahead, that will have an impact going far beyond Russia, far beyond Europe, all over the world. And economically speaking, it means that the new Russia, with all of the production that we'll be able to have with a free economy, will provide great markets for the products of the United States. That means billions of dollars in trade and potentially millions of jobs. It also means if Yeltsin succeeds, if democracy survives, that our children and grandchildren will have removed the fear of the possible world nuclear war that now haunts them because democracies do not begin wars. We come now, however, to Another political question, and I understand that people are interested in politics these days. So, and the political question is this. All of the pollsters are telling their candidates, don't tackle foreign policy, and particularly not foreign aid, because foreign aid is poison as a political issue. They're wrong, and history proves it. In 1947, 
I recall vividly as if it were yesterday what Harry Truman did. Let me lay the foundation of what he did and why. In that year, Harry Truman's popularity in January of that year, 1947, was 35%. The Congress was overwhelmingly Republican. He had suffered an enormous defeat electing the 80th Congress in the previous November. And yet, I remember as if it were yesterday, Harry Truman, jaunty, some said a little cocky, coming down before a joint session of the Congress and asking for millions of dollars in aid to Greece and Turkey to prevent communist subversion and possibly communist aggression. It was a very tough vote for two very young and both, as, late, as history later indicated, rather ambitious young congressmen. The liberal Democrats in Jack, Tenney, in Jack Kennedy's Massachusetts district were against any military foreign aid. And the conservative Republicans in my California district were against all foreign aid. <laughs> Under the circumstances, however, after considering it, we both voted for it. And a majority in the House and the Senate, and that Republican House and Senate, voted for that program. And that was the program which later was developed into the Marshall Plan and later into NATO, which not only contained communism, but bought the time that was essential for communism to fail, as it inevitably did fail last year, not only in the, so in the Soviet Union, as well as, of course, in Eastern Europe three years before. That was an indispensable act. The following year, Harry Truman, who had been 35 percent in January of 1947, won the election for president. What is more important, however, is that that action by a Democratic president supported by a Republican Congress providing aid to Greece and Turkey laid the foundation. It was the indispensable step toward containing communism and eventually providing the basis for the victory of freedom in Russia and in the Soviet Union. And then you have a situation at the present time where we have a Republican president with a Democratic Congress with the opportunity to take action which would provide aid to Russia and the other countries that we have mentioned here, which would assure the victory of freedom. That is the political issue, and that is the foreign policy issue as well. We have then a situation which can be summarized in this way. During the Cold War, the United States and the other nations we're doing everything that we could to prevent the, the success of what were basically evil ideas. Now we have to do what we can to assure the success of those ideas that are good. If, for example, the United States, the people of the United States, could so splendidly react as they did and support that program that I've referred to, 
which Harry Truman asked for 47 years ago, if they could do that, a program which was had for its purpose preventing and defending against war, isn't it also now even a greater inspiration that the United States will join other nations in a program that will bring the blessings of peace. In other words, putting it simply, war brings out the worst and the best in men. Real peace can bring out and will bring out only the best. That is the question then that Americans must face today, political Americans, all Americans. And I think we know what the answer should be. As we look then to the future, I think it is important for us to recognize that we have this great responsibility, but it's also a very great opportunity. Consider this, the 20th century will be remembered as a century of war. By our leadership at this time, we can help make the 21st century a century of peace and freedom. That is our challenge. In his Iron Curtain speech, Winston Churchill said, America at this stands, at this time, stands at the pinnacle of world power. This is a solemn moment for the American democracy because with primacy in power is joined an awesome accountability for the future. Despite what the pessimists say, despite what the negatives say, those words are as true today as they were when he spoke them exactly 45 years ago today. America today has that responsibility. And we say, why not someone else? And if America does not lay lead, who? The Japanese, the Chinese, the Russians, the Germans, they are the only nations in the world that have the potential economic and military power to lead in the next century. This is our moment of greatness. It's our moment of truth. We must seize this moment because we hold the future in our hands. This period of his life shows Nixon as a human. It shows him as somebody who struggled through the failures of life, struggled through the setbacks of a political career, and yet came out on the other side of it. Nixon in exile is a different man. It's a man in full. A man who can look back on success as well as failure, on tragedy as well as triumph, on defeat as well as his defiant response. He never gave up. And there's a lesson in that for all of us. 2,000 years ago, the poet Sophocles wrote, one must wait until the evening to see how splendid the day has been. There is still some time before the sun goes down, but even now I can look back and say that the day has indeed been splendid.
In view of the ordeals I have endured, this may strike some as being an incredible conclusion. I believe, however, that the richness of life is not measured by its length, but by its breadth, its height, and its depth. It has been my good fortune to have lived a very long and a very full life, one in which I have been at the heights, but also at the depths. I shall always remember my first visit to the Grand Canyon 65 years ago. I did not believe any view could be more spectacular than the one from the heights of the South Rim until I hiked seven miles down to the river below and looked back up. It was only then that I fully appreciated the true majesty of one of nature's seven wonders of the world. Only when you have been in the depths can you truly appreciate the heights. I do not suggest, as did Annie Mame, that life is a banquet and most poor suckers are starving to death. Risk-taking and adventure can add zest and meaning to life, but they can also bring the profound sadness of defeat and failure. Life is a roller coaster, exhilarating on the way up and breathtaking on the way down. If you take no risks, you can enjoy a life that is comfortable, trouble-free, placid, and dull. Without risks, you will suffer no defeats. But without risks, you'll win no victories. You must never be satisfied with success, and you should never be discouraged by failure. Failure can be sad, but the greatest sadness is not to try and fail, but to fail to try at all. Above all, you should remember that defeat, which does not destroy you, can strengthen you. In the end, what matters is that you have always lived life to the hilt, I have been on the highest mountains and in the deepest valleys, but I've never lost sight of my destination, a world in which peace and freedom can live together. I have won some great victories and suffered some shattering defeats, but win or lose, I feel fortunate to have come to that time in life when I can finally enjoy what my Quaker grandmother would have called peace at the center. taken heart from what Theodore Roosevelt once said about the man in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is not effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deed who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumphs of high achievements, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly.
thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.